Hello, uh, welcome to Beastly Theories. I'm your host, Danny McGrath. Now, today I've got Alexander Pedikoff with me. Now, Alexander's a documentary filmmaker and multimedia artist. He's an avid adventurer and constantly searches for the unknown, spent time traveling across the United States and the world. He's researched various cryptozoological creatures such as Sasquatch, the Loch Ness Monster, the Lake Champlain Monster, Mystery Big Cats, as well as other phenomenon and mysterious places ranging from the paranormal Bridgewater Triangle of Massachusetts to the Hermit Kingdom of North Korea. He's created short documentary films and series on these subjects, among others, and most recently he's directed Small Time Monsters on the Trail of Champ. He's currently working on his upcoming documentary, Lions of the East. Alex, welcome to the show. Nice to see you. Nice to see you as well, Andy. How are you doing? Very, very good. It's it's a little late here in England, and I'm fresh back from my my holiday break, so I might be a bit sleepy and a bit slow for you. Um, but I think with my stumbling, mumbling English accent, it should all sound the same anyway. Um, now, you've traveled. You've traveled around the world in search of cryptids, directed several documentaries. You're still directing. Yeah. I'd like to know what gave you the desire to dedicate your directing talents to to this rarely paid world of cryptozoology. Good question. I've just always been interested in the subject. Since I was young, I uh, kind of grew a liking towards the Yeti. That's sort of the first cryptid that I was interested in. And of course, if you if you read about it, the time period where the Yeti or the Abominable Snowman was becoming famous was you know, the 1950s and 60s before Bigfoot. So that was the time of adventure. Sir Edmund Hillary, mm-hmm. a lot of those kind of old school explorer types in the Himalayas. And there's sort of romanticism associated with that. And that sort of thrust me into it. And uh, since I've been young, I've been consuming all the documentaries and reading the literature by various cryptozoologists and people involved in the field. And once I kind of started doing it on my own, after being an armchair researcher for a while, I decided to kind of jump in. And and that was my sort of way of researching, was doing documentaries because, you know, as opposed to writing a book or another um, form of kind of investigating with a documentary, you're really doing a lot. You visit the locations, you're interviewing the witnesses and the researchers and even the skeptics. You're conducting a lot of research in, in the sense of reading books and literature about the historical areas or the topic at hand. So it kind of encapsulates a lot of the different ways we look at a particular, say, cryptid mystery or a mystery sort of location. I think that's, that's, that's interesting, actually, when you, you mentioned the different types of people that, that you, you interviewed and you mentioned the skeptics and it just reminded me actually that in cryptozoology, actually, skeptics often have a very bad name uh, amongst, I suppose, what would be termed as believers in the way. And, um, you know, it's something I struggled with when I first started becoming very serious about this, or at least becoming public with it in recent years. And I wondered how that impacts your filmmaking. Now, everybody has their own set opinion on what is possible and what is impossible. How do you um, how do you balance all of these different, you know, multi-denominational schools of thought when you're directing? You know, how do you present the skeptic in just uh, as even a light as the hardened, you know, believer or, or witness? Yeah, sure. Fact? I I think it's pretty simple. I mean, of course, as you mentioned, everyone has their own kind of personal opinions. I have my own about these topics, but I really try not to interject that mm-hmm. in. So I will try to portray what the witnesses say as accurately as I can without cutting it up into a shorter segment like they do Mm -hmm. for TV, as I will with the researchers and even people more on the skeptical side. Because I feel that ultimately I'm not here to tell you whether this creature exists or not. I'm laying out what I've discovered and what I've been Mm -hmm. informed about and letting people ultimately decide for themselves. I think that's the best sort of approach. And with the skeptics, yeah, they do get a very bad reputation and there are these as you mentioned multi-denominational i think is a good term for that mm. camps and different groups even within the believer camps like with bigfoot you have the oh, different yeah. different uh, sort of groups and i think they all there's a strange interaction you could honestly even just analyze this from the human perspective putting the creature aside you could just look at the way all these different groups interact and I think skeptics do get a little bit of a bad uh, rep but i think it's important to have some skepticism there are of course people who I guess I would consider professional skeptics mm-hmm. who are obviously marketing towards that sort of a person who might be more interested in, in the debunking side, uh, which, you know, is, is everyone's kind of playing for a different 
like I see, like you said, camp uh, denomination. So ultimately, I think just to reiterate what I said, uh, it's just the best to lay out the information and let people kind of make up their own mind. And if they if there's a particular aspect of the mystery, let's say champ, if they're really interested in the theories about it being a giant turtle, then they mm. can go and do their own research about that and make up their own mind instead of me just saying it's one thing or another. I kind of try and lay out these different theories and and just let them let them go down the rabbit hole. <laughs> I think that no, I I think that's you know that's the best way. And and uh, being a researcher, if you like myself, um, when I was writing my book, one of the things that troubled me, and I had to honestly come back to time and time again, is that you know I had a certain worldview that um, made an allowance, a religious worldview that made an allowance for many of these creatures to still be in existence those that thought to be you know, from the, the dinosaur period, like plesiosaurs and things like that. And because of that worldview, I had to keep telling myself, okay, okay, Andy, now you're looking at the evidence here favorably towards the plesiosaur theory, because that's, that's what you think is, is possible. But you have to look at the other side, you know, are people really describing something that looks like that? Or is it just what you would like to hear? And, um, it was hard. It was hard not to be subject to that that view all of the time. Now, talking about the Sasquatch camp, you've obviously done a bit of squatching yourself. Um, you're living at, uh, around a lovely part of the world there. So just tell me about the area that you go um, Sasquatch hunting in. I don't like to say squatching, but I, I can't help it sometimes. Uh, the area that you investigate, tell me about that. Uh, what's the topography there what are the challenges and, and what other animals might be around that could be mistaken for uh for a bigfoot sure yeah yeah squatching i guess is sort of the, the cultural term obviously mm -hmm. popularized by some of the programs on tv and whatnot but the area i live in is new england specifically new hampshire but the topography is pretty similar kind of in middle new england i'm fairly close to boston uh, just for reference but to the north, we have uh, the northern end of the Appalachian Trail, which is this massive mountain range that runs from uh, parts of eastern Canada all the way down to Georgia. It's a very popular hiking trail, and these are some of the oldest mountains in the world. They're millions of years old, and as opposed to maybe the Rocky Mountains or the Alps, which are very tall and sharp, the Appalachians are more rounded out. We still have some pretty high peaks, such as Mount Washington here in New Hampshire, about 6,000 plus feet. Uh, so it's very rugged terrain in some parts, and we have very long winters, but for the most part, all of New England is very forested, which I think throws a lot of people off, especially if they're not from this area. They think, oh, Boston or Connecticut, and these areas are very urban. Yeah, there are urban centers, but uh, the, the top three states, essentially, for the most forested states in the United States are in New England, in Maine, wow. Vermont, and New Hampshire. Yeah, Maine is very sparsely populated. Where we were at the cryptozoology conference where we first mm. met is Portland, which is very far south on the coast. And the majority of the population there lives on the coast. And the rest of the state is, uh, a lot of it is actually in private land owned by paper companies. A lot of timber mm. and, and the lumber industry up there is really big. So there's, a, there's millions of acres in New England. And if you combine that with upstate New York, you have the Adirondack Mountains, which is also millions of acres on just on its own, the national forest there. Uh, there's there's a lot of terrain, very rocky terrain. Uh, the middle section, I'd say Massachusetts, a little bit more mild. You've got hills, and uh, but essentially very wooded. So that's kind of the area that, that we're dealing with here. Uh, there's all sorts of critters that inhabit these areas. We've got around 30,000 black bears in New England. Wow. And those are the animals that are probably most commonly associated with being perhaps mistaken for mm. Sasquatch being mistaken. It's actually a bear sort of thing. Uh, there are mountain lion sightings, of course, which we can get into later, which is kind of what I'm dealing with. But we have moose, which are the largest animal in this area. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. Huge, huge. Unfortunately, there's a big uh, tick epidemic going on, which is really decimating a lot of the moose population, which is unfortunate. But they are the biggest animal in this area. And I don't really consider myself so much as a field researcher. I enjoy going squatching. And when I do go, it's usually with people who are more seasoned in kind of... Mm squatching you know going out with the thermal imagers and whatnot i enjoy that i'm a nature guy so i love getting out in the woods but uh, as i said how forested new england is there's so many spots you can go pretty much anywhere there are some clusters but there's not as many clusters say in other parts of the u.s or even canada where there seem to be kind of hot spots of sightings we have a few uh -huh. 
and a few areas like the Bridgewater Triangle, uh, Monster Land in Massachusetts, that's some of the kind of White Mountain National Forest, parts of Vermont. Whitehall, New York is a very big mm -hmm. one, surrounded by parts of, of Vermont. Which has you know very it's kind of considered the bigfoot capital of the east coast if you will so the challenge is there you have a lot of terrain and i've gotten reports and heard of reports and interviewed witnesses in all parts of new england parts that would surprise you that don't mm -hmm. see they would be able to house anything larger than uh, deer but there are sightings of even bear in some of these areas so there, there's really a lot of different spots wow. but it's, it's beautiful it's rugged I mean, if you love the wilderness, New England's amazing for that. We have lots of lakes and, like I said, mountains and, and tons of forests. So it's a really great place for outdoorsy people. Well, I remember uh, after the, the Cryptozoology Conference last year, we went actually driving down through New Hampshire yeah, uh, and then onto Vermont and, and past uh, the mountains, which I, I assume were the Adirondacks there. There's another mountain range that intersects it. What's that called? So you would have, going from Portland, you probably yeah. would have near whites. probably near the whites which would have been to the north yes. and you, you would have seen the green mountains in vermont and the ones across lake champlain mm. are the adirondacks so lake okay. champlain is kind of sandwiched in between the two ranges oh, okay okay so that that makes sense but i was surprised by the the sheer amount of of forest and in fact in, i i think i took nine or ten internal flights in the u.s around the place and this sheer amount of um habitat everywhere Absolutely. was was striking and whenever we we're coming into a, a landing formation took a really good look out of the window and even places like atlanta and it was just non-stop forest and i thought this is a this is a great country for wildlife never mind bigfoot and things like this just for wildlife now to hear that you've got thirty thousand bears in new england makes me think that the, those <laughs> Those nights in the darkness I spent down uh, at Arnold's Bay, you know, and other places around Lake Champlain in the dark were perhaps a bit foolish. <laughs> well, <laughs> but, luckily, um, black bears aren't very aggressive. But uh, mm -hmm. but you're right. I think a lot of people think, especially from outside the U.S., that most of the areas in the U.S., you know, New York, Miami, L.A., Las Vegas, kind of the, the popular spots, but it's a huge country and there's so much space in between. Mm. And what's interesting about the East Coast in particular, and New England especially, is a lot of this land was clear cut. You know, once uh, once it was settled, once it became part of America and into the, the 19th and 20th centuries, a lot of this land was actually clear cut for agriculture. So the forests were decimated. But in the last 100, 150 years, uh, since kind of the advent of the National Forest Service and federal land, and uh, the downfall of a lot of agriculture, you know, America's downsized a lot in terms of farming. The forests have grown back. So a lot of these forests in New England, most of them are new. Most of them are 100 years old, maybe even younger in some cases. So there's not a lot of that old growth forest. Mm -hmm. uh, but what that's done in turn is a lot of the species that were pushed out are slowly moving back, especially in the northern states, like I said, which are Vermont, Maine, and New Hampshire, where there's the least people and the most habitat. That's where you've had the, bat, the black bear really come back and into parts of Massachusetts. Uh, you know, species like the mountain lion and the wolves, those are a little bit more controversial. Seems like that mm -hmm. a little bit slow, but uh, with moose and the other sort of big game, deer populations has exploded. We have so many deer. I mean, I can go to a spot 20 minutes from me tonight and probably see around 50 deer in, in three wow. or four farm fields. Yeah. And they all just live in the same sort of area. So there's there's an abundance of uh, resources in the area too. And, and like I said, with this amount of forest, you have streams and, and uh, natural resources fairly close. So you wouldn't really have to move hundreds of miles away. You wouldn't have to migrate. Let's say if you're a species that migrated, you could just move from one grazing area to another. And I think that's what a lot of the deer and a lot of species do do. Yeah, I think it's, it's interesting. You mentioned uh, some of the other controversial animals moving in because you're working on a documentary about this lions of the east i, I believe is the uh, official title now it seems to be quite self-explanatory but just tell us a little bit about what why it is controversial you know of course there are mountain lions in the u.s so why should it be so controversial that they may be in the in parts of new england Sure. Uh, the reason why it's controversial is essentially because uh, very recently the eastern mountain lion, which so mount uh, just a kind of primer on mountain lions, what people refer to as a mountain lion is also known as a puma or a cougar. 
catamount, sometimes a panther. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're essentially that tawny brownish colored big cat that has a long tail, and mm-hmm. un, you know, unlike a lion with the mane. Um, but you know, because they do live in a lot of mountainous areas, they've taken up mountain lion and a lot of the more regional names, like I said, catamount in Vermont. Uh, these animals officially really went extinct in New England and much of the East Coast in the late 1800s. That's when they were hunted off. They weren't here in as big numbers as uh, perhaps there is today in the western parts of the country. But it's actually very uh, shoddy information because we don't know because people weren't really studying how many there were at the time as as much as we would today with all the conservation movements and uh, regulatory kind of institutes we have that track animal populations. So these animals were essentially killed off, but since since they were killed off up until the modern uh, day, there has been thousands of sightings across New England of what credible people who spend their lives in the woods, hunters and fishermen, all sorts of folks have been seeing mountain lions, creatures with long tails. And it's ignited a conversation of what is going on here. And the controversy is because there are states that do not sort of recognize some of the claims and it's sort of like if you were to tell them you saw Bigfoot, it's very similar mm. aspect. But uh, because mountain lions do exist in North America, their range is presently, uh, or the acknowledged range is around the Rocky Mountains and westward up into California and Canada. So these are the areas where people regularly see mountain mm-hmm. lions, deal with them, where there are established populations. But you do have other parts of the country, in the Dakotas, moving into some of the Midwestern states that have confirmed cases where either a sighting is able to be confirmed or DNA evidence is pulled. And you've had a few from some of the Eastern states here in New England. Um, But yeah, like I said, the reason it's controversial is essentially because um, there's thousands of sightings, but uh, the authorities are saying that that isn't, that there cannot be these animals kind of in this area. And then there's various theories and we can kind of get into that. I mean, that's, it's very interesting to me. And the fact that they wouldn't be seen regularly is not really a big surprise. Um, you know, just, <coughs> excuse me, sorry. Just from the perspective here in the UK, you know, we have similar sightings of similar cats, and yet they're rarely ever seen. Uh, Alex, hang on a second. I just need to, to press pause on this. I've got a bit of a cough. I'll, I'll edit this out. No problem, no problem. That came from out of nowhere. I haven't had a cough. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I'll just go back into that. Yeah, go ahead. So uh, what's surprising to me about that, or not surprising in fact, is that they're rarely seen. They could inhabit this part of New England, which you say is heavily forested, uh, and not be seen by that many people. If there's a large deer population, they don't really have to show themselves. There's plenty to hunt, plenty to kill. Nobody's really going to notice the few deer uh, going missing here and there. And it's the same in, in Britain. We've got uh, melanistic leopard sightings. We've got uh, puma sightings. They're the two most frequently sighted big cats. And yet we've never discovered one. And there's hundreds upon hundreds of sightings all around the country. And this is a small country. You know, we should be able to keep track of them. We should be able to find them. At a place like New England, well, I mean, that's it's just limitless forest. So that proves that it could happen. But from your perspective, in researching this and in, in trying to find evidence, is what I, I expect in your documentary, how are you going to go about trying to track them down or, or capture evidence? Or will you primarily focus on, on people who've seen them and uh, sightings from you know, wildlife professionals and the forestry officials and things like that? Yeah, so it's a, a little bit of everything, I'd say. I'm not really going out so much as into the field. I will be accompanying some researchers as they kind of go about their methodology, similar to with On the Trail of Champ, following what they do. Uh, but, you know, with, with with the case here in New England, there are a few confirmed cases. Some are more controversial than others. The, the biggest case is 2011. A mountain lion was killed in southern Connecticut. Uh, about 70-ish miles from New York City in one of the richest parts of the state of Connecticut. Uh, Very suburban, the last place you'd expect a mountain lion. Uh, Yet this creature was killed crossing a road in a sort of a busy highway area. 
and DNA testing showed that its genetic makeup was from the south uh, or from South Dakota, the Black Hills. So it was a population of mountain lions hundreds, thousands of miles away in the Midwest. I mean, it, it traveled that entire wow. distance and supposedly was seen along the way in parts of Pennsylvania, possibly upstate New York and Massachusetts. It's really hard to tell. I mean, because there are regular sightings coming from these areas anyway. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it's easier to explain away all the sightings as just this one individual when maybe that isn't exactly the case. But in my documentary, I've interviewed a wildlife biologist who in 2001 found scat, which is a fecal matter, which is DNA tested by a lab out west and determined that there was a mountain lion in the Ossipee Mountains in New Hampshire. And this happened in 2001. And wow. this biologist uh, basically said that the state kind of downplayed his findings and they actually had the lab out in Wyoming issue a retraction saying that there wasn't enough evidence. Uh, I just interviewed just this past weekend a woman who had her horse attacked by something. She didn't know what it was. Uh, the state said that it was her negligence that resulted in the horse injuring itself. And horse people are very into their pets. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, these are like family for them, essentially. So she scoured the entire property and she found strange blood and hair samples on a fence post she sent that off to a lab in florida to get tested and it came back as mountain lion wow. which not expect at all they thought it was a bear or maybe something you'd expect in the area and i also interviewed uh during this same trip after interviewing this lady uh, a guy who was a health or um, environmental officer environmental health and safety officer in massachusetts who was one of the first people to start documenting sightings in the 1960s who has found strange scat samples which match mountain lion. He's waiting to get them DNA tested. But he said after this horse incident happened, uh, this animal, this, he stopped finding the scat. So it's almost like there was a direct correlation between this animal, because it got injured. There was apparently some sort of a tussle mm -hmm. with the horse. I, I, from what I understand, mountain lions will actually jump on, their, on the backs of the prey. Mm -hmm. It's a larger animal. That's what a lot of big cats do, and they'll try and get to the jugular or or kind of kill it in that sort of manner, twist the neck, whatever they can do. And there was some kind of a struggle because the a gate was destroyed on the side of this fence post. And that's this horse had a huge gaping wound. And they don't know if that cut was from the, the fence being broken or the, the actual mountain lion. But whatever happened, the mountain lion was pressed up so hard against the fence that parts of its hair were embedded in it, as, as well as blood. Wow trailing across a low fence post that it must have walked near. They determined it was a male. So it was wow. likely probably a juvenile male. And that's one of the theories is that you have these lone males from the Western populations mm. that are way east in search of a mate. They're, like I said, there's abundant food sources, so they don't... Territory? Yeah, they're expanding mm. their territory. I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's happened in the Connecticut case, 100% mm. confirmed. There was also another case very close to that area of Massachusetts in central Massachusetts where supposedly there was a scat found. I'm still kind of trying to dig up information. But this case with the horse as well, the state kind of downplayed it. And they said they wouldn't really recognize the evidence. They wanted to test at an independent lab that both them, the state officials, and this lady agreed to. They did that. And now she's basically convinced they're kind of trying to make it go away. So it's, there's a bit of a conspiracy element to it, and I'm not really one to fan the flames of that, but um, in my honest opinion, it seems like money is always sort of an issue with government institutions that are cash-strapped, and dealing with something like a mountain lion in New England is a lot different than a bear or any of the other large animals we have here. This is an apex predator, very stealthy, mm. uh, move through areas without being seen. In the Connecticut case, I mean, this thing was going through extremely suburban areas, and only got killed when it was hit by a car. So there's really a lot there with that. But that's that's something I'm kind of exploring in the documentary. And like I said, I, I've interviewed fish and game officials in New Hampshire, mm. a Vermont game warden. Uh, and these people all agree, you know, we don't really say that there couldn't be a mountain lion in New England. We just don't think that there's a breeding population. And that's where the contention kind of begins. But there's a big public distrust. Public does not see eye to eye and, and I've routinely been told you know when mentioning stories like this oh the state knows about it yeah they're just covering it up it makes sense they brought them in to control the deer population people are very nonchalant about it they take a line uh, of kind of just assuming yeah oh the government yeah of course they're denying it this is sort of that x-files uh, sort of it's reason the same year it's the same here and, and with the big cat thing um, it seems strange for them to deny such a thing 
unless of course would it create any kind of panic there in the area would people go out and try to hunt it perhaps or would it just be a general population panic yeah i think that there's it's a combination like i said money i think is definitely one thing Mm -hmm. i mean i don't think there's a grand conspiracy where the highest institutions you know usually that's that's sort of very outlandish but um you know you don't want to panic after this horse incident, there was people in that town, in that particular area, were very concerned. They were all putting their their chickens in at night, and they were very worried. And you know, people probably slept with uh, a couple a couple rounds in the rifle that night, or mm. shotgun ready, you know, just in case something were to happen. Because especially on these rural properties, mm. it's you know that's the only thing, only line of defense you have. The police are half an hour away, or the that's sheriff cool. in some cases. So no, of course, you don't want a public hysteria on your hands. That's definitely a part of it. Well, I mean, that makes perfect sense. And I uh, just relating it to our situation again, I think it's more, it's, here it's not a conspiracy. It's it's more of a sort of head in the sand thing. If they acknowledge it, that it exists, they'll have to deal with it. And, it, you know, tracking big cats is very difficult. So it would be a difficult problem to resolve. And once the public expects something to be done about it, you've got to produce some results. And I think that's the issue here. Uh, definitely would seem to be the same situation there to say maybe there's not enough funds we're gonna have to deal with this big cat thing we've got you know thousands of square kilometers of forest how are we going to find it why don't we just say well it's probably not there in the first place you know you found scat from another animal or your horse injured itself etc talking about the horse attack actually when one of the first things that got me to big cats in 99 was um, a sighting that took place at the house I was staying in in rural West Wales near the Priscilla Mountains, and one of the it was a uh, New Year's I think, and I was there with my girlfriend in her parents' house. Closest neighbours are like five miles away, and one of the um, ladies who was staying, a friend of, the, of her mum's from up from London, she actually went out for a cigarette at five in the morning. It was on the sort of veranda there on the patio lit her cigarette and saw this creature in in the light, a panther, black panther, 10 feet away, just staring at her. The sister of my then girlfriend had seen it a couple of weeks before while she was riding over the mountain. And a few months before that, they kept llamas, this this family. One of the llamas had been attacked and had big claw marks in the side of it. And the same kind of things happened. You know, the local authorities said, well, could be like dogs maybe yeah. dogs did this and that's a, that's a classic excuse for most things but all of these people were rational people and they were convinced of what they saw and the local response official response was just to say well you know we don't believe these animals exist in our country so that that's the way forward now moving on a little bit from that um i know you've been around the world investigating uh, different things now that you came here that you went to Loch Ness uh, a few years back and uh, three four years back yeah I think it was 2015 so just 2015 and you you made a mini documentary about the Loch Ness monster which I really really enjoyed by the way and that that's one of the first things I saw that you did even before on, on the trail of champ now tell me a little bit about your time now I've been there a few times you know what was your experience up at the lock? What was your impression of the viability of, of this location to, to hide such a creature? And, and tell us about some of the people you met as well. Sure, yeah, that was really my first kind of documentary on the subject that I uh, decided to do. And it was spurred on by a trip to Scotland. And of course, I said, you know, we need to go to Loch Ness. There's, that's almost non-negotiable. And you know, Loch Ness is one of the top tourism destinations in Scotland. Uh, so, you know, I was there and I had a camera and I just said, you know, I'll just get B-roll, see if I can interview anyone. I didn't interview as many people as I would have liked to. I wasn't I wasn't really thinking about doing a documentary at the time. I was just kind of winging it. Uh, and I met Steve Feltham, who was, uh, I'm sure you were aware of, of course. Yeah, uh, yeah. Spoke of world record, kind of longest Nessie hunter out there. Very interesting character. You know, one of these people that dropped it all and moved to, mm-hmm. to pursue uh, kind of a a young passion, you know, childhood passion of hunting monsters. I mean, who wouldn't want to do that, right? Um, so, you know, interviewed him and just kind of made my way around the lock. We were there for about two, three days. So it was just interesting. I never really saw anything. I, 
you know, and it, Loch Ness is one of these places that I grew up watching on TV. You see this kind of fantastical version that's presented mm. in the programs, and it's a beautiful area. But I, I was kind of surprised at how built up some of the areas were with the roads and everything, and mm. I expected a little bit more. With a lot of houses right on there, I expected more, you know, I guess the way it's presented on TV, a little bit more of a pristine sort of area. But, you know, it's a pretty impressive body of water, definitely. Um, I, to be honest, I'm a little bit more skeptical about the Loch Ness stuff than I am perhaps other Lake Monster stories. I love Nessie, but there's something about some of the kind of the history and a lot of the stuff that's happened that leads me on more of a little bit of a skeptical path where I say, you know, yeah. maybe there was something at some point I don't know. But as opposed to, say, Champ, which I really didn't know much about, which is kind of mm -hmm. funny, given that I grew up in New England, at Loch Ness is across the, the Atlantic, and Ch Lake Champlain is three hours away. I knew very little about Champ, and now I'm completely obsessed, hopelessly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, that, that's the thing, you know, with, with Champ. When I went to uh, Lake Champlain, it was 114 miles long. Uh, 14 miles wider it's something, I wider, something like this and it's this is a huge body of water it's a sea and it's referred to it, it was once part of the lake champlain of the champlain sea right so um it to me it seemed like a sea we don't have anything on that scale and i know that champlain is not the largest lake that you've got so you know this is one of the smaller ones but the, these these great lakes and um when i was there i just thought okay I can conceptualize that a bunch of creatures could live in this body of water quite easily if they're nocturnal, staying out of sight and, you know, avoiding boats and people and all that kind of stuff, even though it's it's a busy waterway. There's a lot of pleasure boaters on the lake, but it's massive. Whereas Loch Ness, you've got maybe a mile, mile and a half at, at the widest, just under 25 miles long. It's very deep, that's for certain. And there's lots of little rivers and locks that lead off it, but it's hard. It just seems to be, it's such a cash cow, the area, and it's such an under-inhabited area as far as uh, local populations go. I was in Fort Augustus recently, that's 600 people residential population. Wow. That's and that's, that's the most, that's the heaviest, that's the biggest population of any village outside of Inverness oh, uh, yeah. around Loch Ness. So, you know, all the other locales, the busyness is the tourists, 300,000 people a year, more or less. That's a lot of money. Yeah. That's a lot of reasons for monsters to be seen and captured. Now, I'm not saying that people fake things, but when you go to the lock, you've witnessed the way the water moves there. It moves very strangely because of the depth and the narrowness. Could wakes stay for about five, six minutes after boats pass. And it's just very, very hard to judge anything out there. You'd have to have a, a really clear sighting. I would have to have a very, very blatant sighting to say I saw something. Or um, as in Champlain, you know, sitting by the water there day after day or being there after dark. It was a creepy place. Yeah, it was, anything was possible. You it know, is. One, I mean, it, that's what really blew me away. I mean, I had been to Lake Champlain in passing in Burlington, Vermont, just a few times growing up, really not much. Uh, and I, knew, I didn't really understand the scale of this lake until I actually went up there to, to film for On the Trail of. And I was there, you know, for three weekends during the summer period, kind of Friday to Sunday, and then a winter shoot as well. And I explored a very relatively small section of the lake there from Burlington, basically down to Virgins and Port Henry, which is, you know, it, it's a sizable part of the lake, but it's not the entire lake. You have the entire New York side, all the way down to Whitehall, New York, for the Bigfoot right. uh, So it's it's inconceivable, actually, how large it is, and the fact that there's thousands, hundreds of thousands of acres of marshland all around. Uh, and some of the parts of the lake, they're not as deep as Loch Ness, as you said. They get to around 400-something feet deep, but the prospect of underwater caves. I mean, there are above ground caves that we know of that are remnants from the Champlain Sea, uh, the discovery of beluga whale skeletons, other marine, and the fact that Lake Champlain has 90 something species of fish. It's one of the most biodiverse lakes in North America, and it's in the top 10 for the largest lakes in North America. It's of course totally eclipsed by the Great Lakes, which are huge. Lake Champlain was at one point considered a great lake and then it had that title revoked because the other great lake communities complained that it was 
kind of a joke compared to them. But, you know, objectively speaking, you go to Lake Champlain and it's huge. I mean, I've just started exploring it a little bit more this year. My brother is in school in Vermont, so I get every chance to go over there. He's very close to the lake there. So I'm always there when I visit him. And we just went down to Whitehall recently. We drove down that entire side from uh, kind of Virgin's area down to Whitehall. That's really where the lake begins. And that's very interesting because uh, Whitehall is near South Bay. South Bay is about five minutes from downtown Whitehall. And the Champlain Canal, which connects Lake Champlain to the Hudson River and then the Atlantic Ocean, where New York City is, is right there. Um, so South Bay is where a lot of the historical sightings in the 1870s happened, where P.T. Barnum, famous showman, put up a $50,000 bounty on Champ's Head. That happened right near Whitehall, which is now, of course, like I mentioned earlier, known for Bigfoot, kind of the East Coast Bigfoot capital. But in downtown Whitehall, you have Champ Restaurant, Bigfoot, Sasquatch, <laughs> all kind of in the same area. I'm actually writing a blog post, kind of a little visitor's guide, uh, uh, Whitehall, where cryptids converge, because you have wow. both and Bigfoot in the same area, which I think is really cool. Um, but, you know, you, we drove up from Whitehall then to Port Henry, which is, of course, I have the shirt on. Port Henry is kind of the the self-proclaimed uh, home of Champ. We have Bullwaga Bay. There's been a lot of sightings in that area over the century, and that's where the bridge that links uh, Vermont and, and uh, New York is in that one section, the southern section of the lake. But it's a huge environment. There's really so many parts. There's some parts that look like bayous you would find in the south. Having just been to Louisiana, you know, some of these areas did look very similar, like Otter Creek. It's called a creek. But yeah. it's, it's a 30-foot wide river that's 40 feet deep in some parts where a lot of these large fish like the sturgeon hang out, mm. feed in. And a lot of the sightings of Champ have been at the mouths of the rivers, whether it's the Winooski, uh, the Osable on the New York side, um, or the Otter Creek there. And there's, I think, seven or eight different rivers and tributaries that feed into the lake. So there's... I mean, there's the Atlantic salmon in the Winooski River, for example. So many different species. So there's it's it's much more abundant, I'd say, than Loch Ness in that aspect, which leads me kind of to think that maybe Loch Ness is something that was more of an ocean-going, perhaps, creature that somehow moved in. But I know it's difficult uh, through the River Ness there. You have to go right through downtown Inverness, having been yeah, in that. You would definitely have to go through that way. I, I considered the... Um, uh, I, I considered the... Uh, the westerly route, actually, because um, even though at points there's there's a few landfalls, an amphibious creature could make it, and was something that's really particular about that area. So when I was at Fort Augustus, I walked along the River Oich, all the way to Loch Kaitra. I was trying to get to Loch Oich on foot, and after about two and a half hours of walking, I thought I'm not going to get there on foot today. And it got <laughs> dark, but it got dark, and I had a little head torch on the way home. Um, but what I realized is that the whole area, it's completely black after dark. There is, you know, that's the pristine part of it. So I stood next to the, uh, to the river Oich as I was walking back in the dark. And on that side, you have the Caledonian Canal. There's a little path in between them. And you've got the river Oich on, on this side. Yeah, I almost and fell into the river, I think, when I was there. Did you? Oh, it runs fast. It was, yeah. The river water was very high when I was there. <laughs> Same. And it's slippery, too. It's very yeah. slippery. Um, I went down to the banks there anyway, just to see in the dark. It, it was at the section I'd, I'd walked uh, down to in the daytime, just to see if I could make out anything at all in the water. And by that, I didn't mean the Loch Ness Monster, but to, to test myself. If something was in this stretch of water right now at nightfall, could I see it? I couldn't see anything. I couldn't see a single thing, and I was right on the edge. I think that's... That's something that people overlook in places like Lake Champlain, Loch Ness, Loch Morar especially, which is so underpopulated. There's another big monster sighting area, um, which has a lot of sightings comparatively to the the low population and the low visitor numbers that it has. And a sea inlet, a very direct one. Um, and I think these creatures, maybe they're not migratory animals, but maybe they're more itinerant. They're more of a roaming behavior, um, living in small pockets, ones and twos in certain lochs, and spreading out uh, as they go along. Lake Champlain, for my mind, <laughs> you know, I'm going out on the stretch here. I think that that lake could easily support 50 creatures, easily. 
Yeah, yeah. And I size-wise, mm. Champ is typically portrayed as a little bit smaller than the Loch Ness monster. Mm -hmm. Even you know the most 15, 20, 25 feet for Champ. A lot of people think hundreds of feet. You know, maybe there's been some fantastical sightings yeah. past, <laughs> but most of the creatures, you know, 15, 20 feet. You have saltwater crocodiles and great white sharks that get to about that size. Yeah, and, you know, see videos of that and. You know, it's it's pretty big, but still, in a large body of water like Lake Champlain, maybe something like that could move around. And and to kind of relay what you were saying about at night, um, you know, being out at night in various parts of Lake Champlain when I was there filming, one night we were out on Arnold's Bay actually at night in the boat, and that was, I mean, there was not a soul around us in the daytime. You know, it's it's fairly busy. There's a lot of, especially in the summer, which is the busy season, of course. Most people don't visit Lake Champlain for Champ as opposed to Loch Ness. We have a big tourism draw. Most people are going to Lake Champlain for fishing, recreation. So during the day, there's a lot of activity on the on the water, but at night, almost nothing. And I've been there in the winter time as well. Of course, it's a completely dead part when parts of the lake are frozen over. But during the summer, on the Otter Creek, we were there at night, nothing there, and you can hear fish jumping about. You know, you're sitting on a little wooden dock, and there's massive fish. I mean, huge fish jumping around. You just hear a big slap. And your head immediately turns with the flashlight, you know, what was that? Or being out on the boat, you get this kind of helpless feeling of, you know, you're out there in the middle of this waterway. There's nobody else around. Something could be feeding, you know, so that's, I think a lot of people have postulated that if these creatures exist, they might feed at night because that's when there's less activity. Or, uh, you know, they say with creatures like manatees and some of these other aquatic animals that they will stay away from areas that have heavy boat traffic. So... Mm -hmm. There's not that many sightings in, for example, Burlington as there are in other quieter parts of the lake. And there's a lot of, of course, boat traffic in Burlington, Vermont. That's where the lake is the widest. And you have the mm -hmm. ferry that goes up to Plattsburgh, New York, on the other side of the lake. And there's fairly, uh, you know, readily a lot of boats on the water there, especially in the season. So maybe something could adapt to kind of stay away from those areas and, and fish and other animals will. I mean, they get scared when a boat is coming in the area. That's why they have Fishermen have the trolling motor, oh, right? Yeah. That you quietly sneak up on something you're trying to catch, which is the whole point of it. I I, I totally agree with that, and I think anything that's that's based that, that earns its living in the water, so to speak, would either have a very good sense of hearing or, or some sort of way to detect, you know, larger prey or, or uh, objects moving towards it. People have postulated perhaps some type of biosonar. I actually think just very, very good hearing, and boats are very noisy. Yeah, and well, it would be easy to stay out of the way, very easy. Sound moves differently in water. I mean, if you, you probably, everyone's done this being, you know, when you're younger and swimming, whatever, and you start, you try to scream underwater, you make a noise, and it travels differently. And mm -hmm. we're not used to that. We're used to kind of the way gravity works and, and everything. And obviously, when you're underwater, it's a totally different story. Sounds, move different and that's why whales have you know echolocation and these kind of adaptabilities to communicate in ways that perhaps wouldn't really be as necessary if you were above of the water level so there's there's really a lot of possibilities and of course you know there's been the echolocation supposedly in lake champlain from various researchers mm -hmm. and it's it's an interesting phenomenon because it adds a different aspect to kind of a mystery because you said okay well it might make sense but at the same time, you know, is it just wishful thinking? I don't know. It's very difficult. But what yeah. blew me up the most about Lake Champlain was probably just the eyewitness uh, sighting and the people I had talked to that had, had these experiences. For me, it was very, very interesting, especially some of the ones that happened even prior to the 1970s. We're talking 1950-something was one of the first people I'd interviewed, or one of the uh, first in terms of sightings, time period. Uh, and yeah, he was in my documentary, and the, he was a fisherman, and they had, they had seen his head kind of pop out of the water and swim around as they were fishing. He was probably trying to feed off whatever fish they were catching, and they didn't know what it was, and they didn't tell anyone for 20-something years until Champ became kind of a local mm -hmm. legend, and there was the news doing pieces on it, and there was Port Henry with the, the Champ parade and, and kind of the T-shirts and everything sort of started, but before then... I mean, a lot of people don't know this, that Lake Champlain Champ had a heyday in the 1870s, well before Nessie was even known. I mean, most people wow. in America, at least on the East Coast, knew about Champ or the Champlain Sea Serpent, as it was called, because of the newspapers in the 1870s. And then it faded out into obscurity. But there were sightings going on. 
and then it came back in the 1970s and into the 1990s and we kind of hit another sort of dull period in the 2000s but there were a few things coming out here and there and there's a little bit more of an enthusiasm maybe after my series i don't know uh, but you know not not as many people know about it ultimately as much as nessie which is you, know, you talk to a lay person what are the things they know in terms of cryptids right bigfoot yes mm. nobody really knows about champ even in some of the local areas people don't really know about champ which is great because i think you have then have people who have never heard of this story that have sightings yeah this famous yeah. sighting it was 70 something people saw it on a boat uh, one of the sunset cruises they have on lake champlain out of burlington like a wedding and they all saw it none of them had ever heard of champ they were out of state so that to me is very fascinating um with champ what's the um for people listening what's the most typical description of the creature or, or what are the most what firstly what's the most typical description of the creature and what's the most complete sighting of the creature that you've heard of yeah, the, the most typical description is sort of the run-of-the-mill lake monster, sort of humps coming out of the water, very indescript. I mean, that could be uh, beavers, it could be sturgeon with the serrated sort of spine, which there are seven-plus-foot sturgeon that have been found in Lake Champlain. I just uncovered some photos recently at a restaurant there where they had like a 10-foot-long sturgeon I think they caught over in, in Plattsburgh and another one. I posted those photos in one of the Facebook groups, but it was in the bathroom of a restaurant in middle Vermont, of all places. Uh, so there are huge, huge fish in the lake, but that's generally the typical sighting is the humps. And then mm. sort of more complete would be people seeing the head and the neck. I've heard quite a few of those sightings. There have been a few on land sightings, of course. Mm -hmm. uh, and so it's the lake creature seen scurrying across a road in between a bay and Otter Creek, um, right there in kind of the Fort Casson area. Uh, so yeah, those are probably the most complete sightings. And then of course, the, one of the, probably the, the most sensational ones, um, which you know, I, I believe to be credible. I believe um, the brother of the witness was Charlie Hour and the Hour family boathouse just north of Burlington, where they saw on multiple occasions, uh, right at the mouth of Winooski River, where the Atlantic salmon spawn, mm -hmm. it's a, kind of a feeding ground for lots of fish species, where they go up into the Winooski River. Uh, they had seen in their boat ramp a uh, creature coming out of the water it looked like a dinosaur-like animal. And then uh, Charlie, who I had interviewed, his sister had seen two of them, both their mother and the sister had seen two creatures, well, a smaller one and a bigger one, which were both looking like dinosaurs. One was a little bit browner color, the other one was darker. Um, and they were just right outside the boat ramp and a boat ramp goes right into the water. So this thing kind of had walked out and then they, it was under a spotlight too. So they had pretty wow. good look. And uh, that would be probably one of the more, more complete sightings. I don't know if they'd seen appendages or flippers or feet or whatever. Mm. Um, yeah, so that, th those are very interesting. I mean, it just really makes you think, you know, what is going on here? <laughs> it really does. And I, I think for locals who know the wildlife, they know what's there, what they're looking for. How can you mistake a large waddling dinosaur with a long neck? With a, with a juvenile for anything else, what else could that possibly be? Yeah. Um, and there's my worldview creeping in again. But I'm you know I'm just going on the on the descriptions. It's strange you mentioned the um, the spawning there at the Winooski, the mouth of the Winooski River. One of the things I uncovered with Loch Ness was that nearly all of the the sightings of Nessie that were not mid Loch were around Inver villages. Inver meaning mouth of the river. Yeah, and nearly all of them around the mouths of the rivers. And when we went then to uh, Cumbria to Lake Windermere to investigate Bonessie, which is a very similar lake monster from that area, I remember pilot on that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, well, nearly all of the um, sightings were at the River Rothy, which was in the north of the lake, by a very uh, not far from a little trout farm, and lots of the fish were entering entering the, the deeper water at that point and it's very strange i thought that's really weird well, not really if you're thinking of an animal that wants to catch its prey unawares why not get them as they move into deeper water you know from the safety of the river this is a good feeding spot and i like that correlation i really do like that correlation um now i wanted to ask you about the lake monster researchers and it's the same raw cryptid researchers in my uh, experience in meeting people, 
whether it's uh, Steve Feltham holding this record now, I think it's 27 years now. It was 25. It was 25 when I was there, yeah. Yeah, or Dennis Hall, you know, who's been at the lake doing this for maybe 30, 35 years. Katie's Lake Champlain for eight, nine plus years now. For the people who, who do the sitting, I, I call it a sit-in, you know, uh, uh, a cryptid sit-in at some locale and stay there. What do you think, you know, the dangers of that kind of obsession? Because essentially the the primary aspect that all cryptids seem to have in common is their elusiveness, their, uh, our inability to find them, even when, as Steve will probably tell you, you know, it's his 27 years, his, his sighting made him move there. And he's not seen it since, really, not properly. That's a lot of time looking for something and not finding it. And for me, I think that would affect my uh, sense of achievement you know, I haven't spent that much time. I would more like I would look at this more like a scientific experiment, yeah, like right. a research project. You spend a year, year and a half max. You produce your results. You found it. You didn't find it. Uh, these are the evidence we got. These are the results we turned up. Experiment over. Let's get back on with our lives. What do you think of the psychological impact of this kind of um, long-term vigil? Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. It's something we often ponder in this subject given that there's so many different creatures and obviously Bigfoot is the most popular one, but I think we all sort of have a sort of romanticism towards the subject and perhaps mm-hmm. something we're bringing in from childhood, that sense of wonder, especially in a world like today where everything seems to be encroaching and mm-hmm. uh, technology is sort of taking over and it's, it's much different world than it was a hundred years ago. So I think we have sort of a romanticism towards these subjects, but uh, most people don't act on these sort of, I guess, impulses or, or something desire. I mean, who wouldn't love to become a full-time kind of cryptid hunter and, and search for these things and then live right at the spot? And I think there's very few people who are willing to do that. And those that do, you know, they're so driven that perhaps they will want to see, you know, something so bad that they may end up seeing it mm-hmm. to kind of justify their, their worldview or their sort of existence in that sense. And I think with Steve, it's interesting because it maybe has drawn him a little bit more on the skeptical side at this point, mm. at least from what I took away from that. But same here, yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, so it's it's interesting because, like I said, it takes a lot of guts to kind of just drop everything and and dedicate yourself wholeheartedly. Um, but you know, as we look through these characters, there's there's a vast array of the types of people they get involved in this. I mean, you got people like Scott Martis and. Mm. Grant Guinness, who unfortunately passed away, and he was into Bigfoot. And, you know, what spurred him on his quest 20-something years was seeing a Bigfoot mm. and then getting involved and transitioning into Champ because he he had a connection with the eyewitnesses. He understood what they had kind of experienced. Without having seen Champ, he had kind of conveyed what he had seen in Bigfoot. Mm. Uh, even before that, you know, um, Zarzinski, Joseph Zarzinski, who was... Uh, kind of the first sort of champ researcher, Philip Rhines, other folks as well. Mm-hmm. And, and that kind of, once they all step out, they spend 20, 30 years in the field. They all kind of retire either out of frustration or just old age. And a new sort of line of people come in. You know, maybe at that point would have been Dennis Hall and Scott mm-hmm. Martin. And then now you have Katie Elizabeth. And uh, with the whole Lake Monster research field, I think there's really not that many people involved. That's what's so interesting about it. That's very true. Compared to Bigfoot, I mean, there really aren't that many full-time Bigfoot hunters, people that are living out in the middle of the woods just looking for Bigfoot all the time, right? A lot of people do it on more of a passion or a hobby sort of mm-hmm. scale. I mean, I know there's things like um, the the uh, North American Wood Ape Conservancy. They do sort of dispatches for months at a time in the woods. That's different. That's more of doing like a scientific sort of mm-hmm. sit-down as opposed to living perhaps in a cabin for two years in a row where there's supposedly Bigfoot activity. I mean, maybe that there, there is some of that out there. Habituations, I don't know. But I'm talking in terms of just kind of with something as a lake, you're presented with much more of a challenge in terms of an mm. environment you have to study and deal with. And you know, you have one, three, one to two people, one, three people looking for something in a lake as large as Lake Champlain or even Steve Feltham at Loch Ness. Mm. Uh, it's, it's very difficult to... Uh, perhaps come up with anything tangible and I think that's why people get frustrated or they um, end up sort of 
maybe going off a deep end. I don't know how to. How else no, to I mean, I, I'm obviously not trying to, to um, pull you into an, a negative about that. I just, um, it was, and I think you answered it really well. For me, it was more of a, I, I put myself in that position whenever I've been to, to Loch Ness or other lakes. The first thing I, I think is, well, day two, day three, this is kind of boring. It's mm -hmm. boring. And it, the excitement of possibly seeing something, it, that's amazing. You know, doing the, the, the scientific bit, searching for evidence, that's great. But essentially, staring at water for hours and hours on end, it leads to a kind of blindness. You can't see anything after a couple of hours. You have to be very patient, more patient than the fisherman, because at least a fisherman gets a fish. Yes. You know, you've got a, you're fishing for something without bait, and um, you're hoping it will reveal itself to you. Whereas the likelihood is with something that's perhaps has some form of biosonar or some amazing sense of hearing and what carries that sound so well, it probably is aware that you are there standing on the shore anyway, if it's in the master of its own environment. So if it is shy, if it is elusive, it wants to stay away from us, just your presence itself is almost a guarantee that you're not going to see it. Um, similarly, with Bigfoot sightings, um, in the UK here anyway, we kind of figured out recently that nearly all Bigfoot sightings were made by accidental witnesses in the UK. Yeah. Somebody who didn't know what a Bigfoot was, had been driving or walking the dog or going somewhere in the forest, minding their own business, and the creature itself had accidentally come upon them, usually. A few curious cases of, of the, more of a peekaboo, you know, curious Bigfoot thing, but generally speaking, the creature was caught off guard, and so were they. And then guys like me, going out there looking for stuff, they never find anything. Because essentially, I think from an animal's point of view, looking, uh, searching looks like hunting. Yeah. From a, another predator's point of view, you look like a predator. You're looking, you're hunting, you're searching for something, and that keeps them away. At least that's my opinion, or my get-out-of-jail-free card for the yeah, lack yeah, of no, I, evidence and, and, you know, hard data. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, I think it's uh, part of it is just you go out there most of the time, you're not going to experience anything. I mean, I go out to some spots in the woods just to kind of get out into nature. I'll hear a tree break and I'll kind of think twice and I say, you know, Bigfoot on the brain. You're always mm -hmm. thinking about it because it's always in the back of your mind. So the case here, most people I've talked to too that, are, that I consider credible witnesses, it happened accidentally as well. Mm. Either it was a road crossing. This is the same thing with Bigfoot as, as with the mountain lions. You know, it's very mm. rarely that someone's actually going out and having an experience knowing that they want to or, or you know, kind of looking for the creature. It's the accidental experiences. Even with Champ, a lot of those sightings are completely coincidental. Uh, like I said, people who aren't even from that area having a sighting, you know, it's not like they're expecting it. So uh, what exactly could be going on with that? But uh, that's the, the trick is, you know, just trying to stay hopeful. And uh, I think for me personally, a lot of these eyewitness stories really invigorate me. And that keeps me enthusiastic because a lot of the time, some of the community stuff and a lot of the researchers, egos, everything gets in the way. People are arguing a lot. There's a lot of drama. Of and that really... Yeah, it pushes me away from some of these subjects. And I just kind of say, well, you know, there are people doing this that are, you know, just independent, not not really researchers, but just witnesses that are standalone witnesses. They have nothing to do with the online squabbles, but they're having legitimate experiences. And that's, for me, it's kind of the interesting part is trying to seek those out or, or document those, talk about those and preserving kind of local history in that sense with the documentaries, especially you cover topics like, Boggy Creek monster and Falk, you know, that's an area I was in recently. That's such a popular sort of subject. But with any of these sort of cryptids, it's very, very interesting to actually seek out those witnesses and, and talk to those folks. Now, that to me, uh, I think is a very good point. Keeping the, the witnesses pristine, keeping it pure, um, and, and searching for the um, antagonistic witness, the one that what doesn't want to be, and has no idea why this thing happened to them. And usually they wish that they hadn't seen something yeah. because it's one of these things, you know, you have professional, credible people risking their reputations because they can't unsee what they have seen. Yeah, um, absolutely. 
I think that's you're totally right. They're in a lot of cases they lose credibility with talking mm -hmm. about something like this. I think there's some people that they curse the day that they saw this thing, or in in some cases there's even trauma associated with it. Because if you're in a vulnerable position, maybe you're out in the middle of the woods, mm. uh, you don't have a weapon on you, or whatever the case may be, and you see something that is not supposed to exist, and it flips your reality upside down instantly, your brain is trying to process what is going on. Maybe you're intimidated or scared. That can lead to some serious trauma. And I've, I've talked to people who definitely have been kind of, they're like, I don't go into the woods the same again, or I will never step in the forest without a shotgun, a shotgun or whatever the case may be. Is that a fear? And that really tells you really tells you something tangible, tangible that happened to them. Um, I'm not going to be able to tell them what they saw. I wasn't there. That's simply the truth is the, you know, the unfortunate truth is that I will never be able to experience what they did. So the best I can work with is just their story. And a lot of people like to kind of rag on the eyewitnesses and say, oh, well, eyewitnesses are often not credible even though they're still used in courts of law. But I think when you talk to people that have experience, especially out in the wilderness or lake, whatever the case may be, they know the local area. They've grown up on that area. I mean, what, what are, how are they seeing a bear in a strange way? You know, if they've killed bears in their life and are very experienced with living with them daily and something that they see pushes them over the edge, they won't go into the woods without a, a weapon. Uh, that for me is very, very intriguing, and um, I don't know. I, I don't think a wide, massive hoax on <laughs> this sort of centuries going on is is really the case. There's something tangible probably behind a lot of these eyewitnesses. Most definitely. I remember as well that people don't get a special reward when they they see something and they report it, or they photograph something and they go public. Sandra Mansi didn't get some special reward. She got 30 years of, or 40 years of harassment, right? And the other witnesses, the professional witnesses, they get vilified, they get mocked, they get ridiculed. In this country, at least, if you see Nessie, you go to the papers, people might think that's a bit amusing. You saw something in the lock, that's kind of acceptable, perhaps. If you say you've seen a Bigfoot, forget about it. You know, you are... It, you're either you could say you saw a UFO and be perceived as a better person than somebody who said they saw Nessie. I uh, sorry, a Bigfoot. Now, uh, just to finish up, you know, and I know I've I've kind of really chewed the fat with you here, but I, I would be interesting to know as a documentary maker yourself, what do you think the the current climate cryptozoology needs to make it media viable again? Um, how do we get the networks interested in monsters, uh, per se, uh, and get their attention away from, you know, the paranormal lockdown type of things and the, the, the UFO conspiracy files, all this kind of stuff. It seems to be, you know, we're all this weird fringe affiliated crowd, at least when you go to the conferences, you see that. But the cryptozoology side has, has dropped away. Now, I know people like Seth, Breedlove and you, you, you done you know a good job independently to bring that back around but what about the networks what about the big uh producers what could attract them to this idea once again and make it exciting i don't know i mean i think unfortunately there's a lot of them that are they don't really care about the subject they're more interested in the revenue and the human drama because all a lot of these programs have been reality tv driven it hasn't been about the monster it's been mm -hmm. about Way the researchers are crazy or whatever the case may be.